This is Meowcore, the show where I, Laura, introduce my cool friend, Panya, to the rock and metal bands that I like. And in return, she'll be... <laughs> and in return, she'll be telling me about her five cats. And perhaps the books you've read, right? You wanted to talk about books too? I could tell you about the books I've read. Mm-hmm. I'll ask you later what you last read. So, okay. episode one... We start with the basics. Do you have a minute to talk about Black Sabbath? I do. This is where I, I ring your doorbell <laughs> and I'm <laughs> <laughs> and I'm dressed in full whatever leather and, and denim. And I have okay. the, I have the correct Sabbath t shirt with Dio Sabbath and I want it a minute of your time. Okay. Okay. Just so one minute? Wow. <laughs> we will find out how long this recording is. Mm, so, right. So they start at the end of the 60s, which is okay. after we've had these huge bands like Cream that has Eric Clapton in it, and The Doors, and Iron Butterfly, which is a very cool band too. And the Kinks, Butterfly. yeah, and the I think the Kinks were from that. the UK, and uh, the Shadows. Sounds right. You know the Shadows? No. They were. They had. I re- I remember seeing them in black and white sometime in the sixties. I didn't see them in the sixties. Okay. I remember them <laughs> seeing them in videos. I certainly hope you didn't see them in the <laughs> 60s. I, as far as I know, you're younger than I am. Yes, and I am not a vampire. But they ha- I remember them, like several sure. guitar players playing these electric guitars. And Cliff Richard was in the shadows at some point, but he was not a, a guitar hero. Okay. And the shadows were an inspiration to a lot of the guitarists of the 70s, so that's why I mentioned them. And Sabbath is supposed to be one of the first metal bands, if you ask. Um, supposed to be. Yeah, because I've recently watched several musicians saying, no, if I was the first person referred to as metal. Or oh. journalists called me metal. They all want that specialness. Yeah. Journalists were the... They I was the first the person the journalist called metal. No, no, no. But... It seems it that, matter. yeah, it seems that what Tony Iommi did with the, in those riffs really was a new thing. And let's okay. let's go straight into. Ha, let's have some riffs. Yeah, let's go into NIB. The song is called NIB. That is supposed to be something referring to a beard, the bassist's beard. I don't know what a nib is. Is that a word? Nib? But they, they wanted to make it cooler, so they put the initials in. Nib in English is the end of a particular kind of pen. A pen nib. Ah, so he had a pointy beard. Okay. Alright. Could be. Mm, what did I want to All tell right. you about NIB before we start? This, uh, the lyrics at first, when they started with Ozzy, were written by the bassist, uh, Giza Butler. And 
In this song, he says he was talking about the devil who had fallen in love and was turning into a good person. And you will hear Geezer Butler I see. playing on his bass for a while, and then he will start playing the riff, which is not a typical thing. It's usually the guitar player that introduces the riff, but he's a special guy with a nib. So let's play NIB. I don't usually think of bass as being string picking, but this sounds like string picking. Hmm. I don't even know what picking is. As opposed to what, strumming? Don't know. That was interesting. Hmm. I feel like there's an element to certain kinds of poetry, and I hear it sometimes in music too. I most often encounter it actually with people doing Shakespeare, where there's this desire to emphasize the rhyme scheme. And I'm hearing it in this, where they're hitting, the, the singer is hitting quite hard on the elements of the lyrics that rhyme with each other. Hmm. And it's pretty, like the guitar work is amazing, but the, the lyrical line is crap. It doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't do anything. I would much rather just listen to the guitars behind that and not listen to the lyrics at all. That's how I often feel about Ozzy Osbourne singing. Um, that wasn't singing. That was chanting. It wasn't even singing. Chanting. Chanting has a value too. But when you say... That's true. When you say lyric line, you mean melody. I mean the the notes which are sung by the person singing the lyrics. Mm-hmm. So I guess melody. Mm-hmm. Hmm. But it doesn't. It doesn't do anything particularly spectacular. No. It's pretty. It's pretty limited in its range. Mm-hmm. Whereas the guitars behind it are doing all kinds of fascinating things, and there are places where it's almost ex- obscuring what the guitars are doing, or the bass. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Which is much more interesting, and I do find it interesting, especially in coming from the modern era and this was what 50 60 years ago now Mm -hmm. um the difference in the way that the music is expected to introduce itself i don't Mm -hmm. think there's that many songs especially not popular songs where it's I guess acceptable is a good word to start with a bass line, especially a bass line that is that sounds like individual notes being picked and have it run that long. That ran, what, 25, 30 seconds before we added any other instruments? Yeah. They, they and that's very different fun. from what is now. Hmm. This, this is the sort of fun that we, we have sometimes in metal, especially when you have a a more prominent bass player. They let him have some fun. Yep. I liked it. Mm-hmm. But if we could just take, if we could give the the lines, the lyrics to somebody else who could do more with their voice, that'd be great. Yeah, we'll do it in 10 years. We'll do it. <laughs> okay. In, okay. In 1980, we will change, change singers. Mm. Okay. Let's go to a song where I think Ozzy is more expressive and more impressive. Expressive? Yeah, expressive, impressive. He goes to these really high notes and he seems to um it he seems to 
gel really nicely with the way that Iommi's guitars sound. They're both abrasive. Uh, Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath is a very abrasive song. Let's play Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath. That was a much more familiar kind of song in a weird way. Hmm. Not that you have heard Definitely it, but... More... No, I don't think I have ever heard it. But it's stylistically much more similar to things I have heard. Especially the sort of music that my dad used to introduce me to when I was young. Hmm. What was that? I spent hours listening to Anagata DeVita. The drum solo just blew my mind. Wait, what band was that? I was looking at this yesterday. Iron Butterfly? That's right. That's that's their biggest song. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because the drum solo is freaking amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the point is, that's much more similar, whereas Nib is... Nib was very different to the sorts of things that I'm used to listening to. Mm -hmm. And I thought at the beginning of this one, oh, this sounds like the sort of thing you'd try to play in Guitar Hero. There's definitely, there's a little more work here with what the lyric line does. Mm -hmm. But again, there's still this point of, you need to stop singing because I want to listen to what else is going on. <laughs> and... It's interesting, I'm, I'm thinking about this and I'm looking at the length of the song and the way that the lyrics are repeating. And, I mean, they don't repeat nearly as much in here. But again, both of these songs were almost six minutes long, which is very different from modern songs. Modern songs, especially pop songs, are nearly that long. There's this idea that you can't hold people's attention for longer than three minutes or so whether it's with music or television or you can even see it a little bit in movies where they shift the scenes fairly quickly. You don't tend to stay still in a scene or with a lyric or anything for a long time mm -hmm. these days. And this one is, is much longer and has that long piece about two-thirds of the way through where it's just the instruments and it's much more interesting to listen to that. Even though... In this one, I don't feel like the the riffs are good, but I don't feel that there was as much. How do I put this? It wasn't as spectacular, I guess, as the sounds from the previous song. Yeah, they were good, but it wasn't as it wasn't me going, "Wow, how did they do that?" Nearly as much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. And the, these lyrics are. This is. This very a uh, grim outlook on life. The gates of life are closed in you, and there's just no return. Right, the execution of your mind. Mm -hmm. The end begins to show. It's like, what? What are you doing? Do you need a hug? Oh, we need a therapy. Need a hug? Therapy and hugs and everything. No more tomorrow. Life is killing you, and it's nice. It's useful to have songs like this. Right, I was just thinking exactly that, that there have been times in my life where this is the feeling I have. And there are there are not actually that many songs that really address that tangled combination of anger and existential doubt and grief. Grief is easy. Lots of songs address the grief. And you can find songs that address that, that doubt of why am I here. 
but there aren't really that many songs, especially not on radio, that address the whole tangled conversation, the one that, at least when I was younger, made me go out and pick up a stick and bang on trees because I couldn't think of anything else to do with those emotions. It's not exactly destructive, but if you sit there with them inside you, you feel like you're just melting down inside. And it's not healthy, obviously, to just hold those things inside you. No. It's nice to hear someone else speak these these things that you're feeling and not to feel alone. Mm -hmm. And the rhythm is really good for that, too. The, The underlying rhythm of this in a weird kind of way feels like gently banging your head on a desk. <laughs> what a what a masterpiece. <laughs> oh. Um I didn't used to understand this. I thought emotions like this and such strong words in music were scary and dangerous for the people listening. And that's what people were thinking back in the satanic panic in the US. And any uh, conservative, let's say, evangelical may think, this person is saying scary things, I don't want to be influenced by them. And I remember uh, reading what people thought about Metallica's Fade to Black. They have a song about uh, just wanting to die. And people were saying, this song kept me from ending my life. And I was so puzzled. Because there's no hope in this song. There's an element in depression and other mental illnesses that commonly makes those of us who have it feel alone. Feel as though nobody else could possibly be feeling the same things we're feeling. Nobody else is suffering this. Look around you. Everyone else is smiling and happy. What's wrong with you? You're broken. There's something wrong with you. And so to hear a song that unabashedly says, I feel this too, this is how I feel, I want to die, can be so freeing. You'll probably have to go back and listen to it on a regular basis to get that again. Because the, the insidious whispers of you're alone are pretty strong. But it's a song, so you can. You can go back over and over and over and be reminded you're not alone. There's somebody who felt this strongly enough to shape this song that is so clearly what I'm feeling. In this genre, but you, can, also... you can make compilations. You don't have to listen to the same song. Right. right. There can be more than one even. But just one song can lead you down the right route to find the rest of them. And then to find songs that say, all right, I want to die, but I'm not gonna. All right, I want to die, but maybe I'll just scream instead. Or whatever it takes. I want to go to a ballad. Let's say it's a ballad. It's the uh, softest um, song I have heard from Ozzy Sabbath. And perhaps even Dio Sabbath. Um, and I heard about it because I, I wasn't hugely interested in Ozzy Sabbath. I heard about it when uh, Villevalo covered it. Um under the the name of Rambo Rambo. I've probably sent you this one. It's called Solitude. But let's hear it from Ozzy this time. Let's listen to Solitude. Somebody had been listening to Celtic music when they wrote that. Yeah. 
and it's not just a flute. No, and I'm not even, I'm not entirely sure that's actually a flute, but it's definitely some kind of whistle. Um, but the whole rhythm of it, the way that the notes flow together, ballad, you're thinking, you were saying ballad partly in terms of like rock ballad, but I think it's echoing much older ballads than that. The rhythm of the way that the lyric goes and the underlying instrumental bass for it which sort of compared to the other two songs the guitar and the whistle are offering much more of a base for what the lyrics are doing like they're supporting it in a way that's different from the other two but is very reminiscent of pretty much every piece of celtic music i've ever heard i should listen to more of that but that's a very sad song as well which there are a number of similar kinds of songs in Celtic ballads of uh, the mourning of someone who went away or was stolen away or um, there's a song that the Beatles sang I think that I used to love let me look that up yeah the Beatles sang a traditional Scottish folk song called My Bonnie uh, they did a rock and roll version Oh. Very, very, very early. It was basically the first thing. Bring back my bonnet to me? Mm -hmm. oh, okay. And the, the rhythm of it and the idea of it is very similar to this. My bonnie lies over the ocean. My bonnie lies over the sea. My bonnie lies over the ocean. Oh, bring back my bunny to me. So the rhythm of it is is pretty similar to the way that solitude flows, mm. the, the up and down. And there's probably some musical terms that I'm missing here about the the relationship between notes that I don't have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That implies uh, or suggests melancholy or sadness. Mm-hmm. And I haven't read about the making of this album and how they wrote the song, but it's it's interesting. There's there is a few folky inclinations in Tony Iommi. It's nice to hear them. Well, and given that they were shaping these, let's see if we dig around in history. It's probably fair to say that Elvis was one of the first true rock and roll artists. And his rock and roll music began in the 50s. So there's not that much time difference. And for all that, you know rock and roll is different from folk music it's also true that if you look back through these earliest musicians of what was termed rock and roll it's very clear where the roots lie it's very clear that they've taken these familiar old folk tunes that used fiddle and used tambourine and used uh, unmodified guitar and they've simply added a more intense beat 
or a more powerful kind of guitar. And so it's, again, unsurprising that that would continue to carry through even all the way into the present day, but show clearly in what Tone Iommi was doing. Mm -hmm. And the other influence that they talk about more often, no one really asked them, these people from the 70s, about their folk influences, but they do talk about listening to American, uh, black American blues musicians. And and then the the bluesmen of uh, of the UK, and uh, Tony Tony Iommi talks about a Belgian. There was another nationality also mixed uh, guitarist named Django uh, Reinhardt, who had um, also like Tony um, problems with his fingers. I think parts of his fingers were missing, so he adapted his guitar and. Uh, so when I've, I've probably told you about Iommi's incident at the factory, which got, got him rid of the tips of two fingers. You mentioned that he was missing the tips of two fingers. You did yeah. not mention why. Yeah, he was very young, late teens, and he was working in his hometown of uh, Birmingham in this factory. Right. He was on this metal right. metal cutting machine, and... There was a part of it that he didn't know that well, and this blade just fell on his hand, and he withdrew his hand and lost the tips of two fingers. That's a pretty common thing. Lots of folk from that day and age are missing tips of fingers, bits of... in, in ways that we wouldn't think of now, because those were the incidents that led to what in America we refer to as OSHA. Yeah. Um, health and safety laws mm -hmm. and also I'd have to check the dates but I want to say that was the also the sort of thing that led to child labor laws because there came to be this belief that children couldn't be trusted mm -hmm. around such dangerous machines mm -hmm. and also that children needed to be protected <laughs> yeah whether they whether or not they could be trusted they still needed to be protected from mm -hmm. it yeah and of course, Birmingham was, and still is, I think, widely considered the industrial heart of England. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the things that, both a lot of the newest industry would have grown up there, and the experiences, as we've people figured out how and why different machines worked or didn't work, and what dangers they posed to the operators would have also occurred there. Mm-hmm. Yep, and they have a very cute accent. You will hear it if you listen to Tony Iommi and uh -huh. Giza Butler. You will hear it in Rob Halford from Judas Priest. He's somewhere over there, too. I really like listening to them. Mm. So what was I thinking? The fingers. So this guitar sound, this um, kind of blunt, um, huge sound that Iommi has is partly because of a disability that he adapted to. He... Uh, melted the caps of uh, of uh, bottles from soft drinks and he made himself fingertips and he practiced and he changed the strings of his guitar. I'm not sure what sort of strings he has, but they're a bit unconventional. And uh, that's, that's part of the sound. It's funny. And I, I wanted to mention also, I'm not going chronologically. I'm showing you I noticed that yeah I'm showing me my experience of the bands that we're listening to although NIB was okay. from their first album 
we did start at the start. I see that. And then we skipped to 73, and then we skipped back to 71. <laughs> yeah. That's fine. Now, an opus. A huge piece. An opus? Yeah. Okay. It's called War Pigs. It's pretty popular. I know that heard name. It. Yeah, I know that name. I don't know that I've heard it. It has a nice element of revenge at the end in the lyrics. Give it a listen. Let's listen to War Pigs. Whoa, what is that? <laughs> that thing on the end, what was that? Well, they sped up the tape, I guess. <laughs> I guess, wow, that was... I'm, I'm drifting along in the guitars and then suddenly... And I'm like, whoa! Don't get comfortable mm. on a anti-war song. I see we've gone back to the point before Ozzy had any musical training whatsoever. <laughs> we've gone back to the chanting, and yet for this song, it actually seems more suitable than the previous, than the first song. It seems more suitable to have the chanting. But I also recognize the roots of this song, too. This was written during the Vietnam protest era. Yeah. Very, it's vividly obvious. Mm -hmm. The lyrics are very much about the Vietnam protests, and I—it's odd because I don't know that that affected Britain the same way. It's—it's it's, everything that I've ever learned about Vietnam protest era was uh, heavily American, which may—I don't know how much of that has to do with the fact that I'm American and haven't got exposed to certain things, mm -hmm. but it's deeply rooted in that period of time where at least in the United States there was an enormous backlash against not just the Vietnam War specifically but war in general this idea that that any kind of war that was being waged in the world was being done so because politicians would get power out of it because someone would get money out of it and it's probably fair to say that now and then and throughout history, a war has always profited somebody. But there's a certain unfair assumption, I think, from that era that to a certain extent still holds true today. That if we could just sit down and talk it out, we wouldn't have to go to war. Yeah, that really but doesn't work. The, yeah, the, what I refer to as the hyper pacifist movement also has its roots in that era, and this song pretty clearly encapsulates some of the roots. You know, why should the politicians go out to fight? They only started it; they leave the fighting to other people and keep themselves safe. Mm -hmm. And there'll be judgment one day. Right. Nothing we can well, do. Well, I now, guess but... we'll see. <laughs> yeah, I guess Giza Butler was very attuned to what was happening in America as a musician. They had probably been on Possibly. tour at this I'm point. I might have to do some more research on that era and find out how it was how it was in other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially when we when American children learn twentieth century history, it does tend to be extremely. United States focused and there's a lot of stuff that was going on in other countries at that time that I don't have clear knowledge of because it was uh, it was not provided me in school and I have so many other little things I'm interested in that I haven't <laughs> gone looking for that mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and there were sirens, but there were moments where the guitars kind of sounded like sirens. There were two moments in the song where he was playing na 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 na. It was also an alarming moment, an alarm moment. And did you hear how Iomi makes the sound more impressive by just recording two guitars? There was a solo where they were not even synchronized. One was playing one thing, the other was playing another thing. I did notice that. I think the thing that's odd to me is that with the music that I grew up with in the, the late 80s and the 90s, that's such a common thing that to me it doesn't stand out as different. Mm-hmm. It only stands out it's different if I'm comparing this song to songs that came before and then it's a clear change from what came before. So he may have been but if one of the people that started it's odd, it. It's entirely possible. Because But if I'm looking backwards mm, it just seems perfectly normal. Yeah. Cuz I, I don't remember it happening with Richie Blackmore and Deep Purple. And I don't remember it happening with Jimmy Page. They had very distinct sound, but there was not two of them usually. We'll see. We'll listen for that. Okay. And I think this is where we can end the Aussie era. Aussie, at the end of the 70s, becomes pretty unreliable because he's got serious problems with addictions. And they decide to part ways. he became a rock and roller. (laughs) Yeah. They had been rock and roll people for a long time, but he stopped um, being reliable. More than the others, maybe. Don't know. And uh, they're wondering what to do. They're looking for another singer. And uh, Ozzy's wife, Sharon, introduces Tony to Ronnie James Dio. And uh, around that time, Dio is talking to his wife, Wendy, and he's saying, I'm not sure I like the music that much to join. And Wendy says, We only have $800 in the bank. You love this music. <laughs> and he even if you don't like the music we need to eat yeah so compromise your pride here for a minute <laughs> and make it so we can eat yeah and before that he had been and it's just mm-hmm. astonishing mm-hmm. there's this idea i think um that once you become a musician you're either always a starving artist or you're immediately successful and never have to worry about money again <laughs> There's no real consideration of the the in between times, mm-hmm. and so and of course once you've become famous, well you could never you how could you possibly have ever been a starving artist? Yeah, and I imagine that there are people who think that Dio sold out when he joined Sabbath, precisely because he did it. From the sounds of it, he initially did it for money. That's one aspect. And I believe that that's considered the definition of selling out. <laughs> Happily, I've never heard anyone say that Dio signed, uh, sold out. Sold out. Um, maybe because he didn't talk about this doubt much in interviews, but he did He did mention it at the mm. end. Well, I, I actually heard it from Wendy Dio in the documentary after he passed. Um, I haven't finished his book. We'll see. Mm. Bef- Maybe it was just not something he ever wanted to talk about because he did come to mm-hmm. to be so significant to the band and it became significant to him. Mm-hmm. So he didn't want to talk about the doubts. Yeah. He was in his 30s at this point. 
when he joins in 79 or 80, 1980. And he, he had started long before that with these these very sweet ballad type of bands in the 50s and the 60s. Mm. He was a bit of a crooner, a gentle singer, and then he made his own band Elf, and then he was in a band called Rainbow, which was really successful. I'll play you Rainbow another day. And it, That's the origination of Heavy Mithril. Yeah. How did we come to we'll this? We'll get back to that. We'll get, we'll get back to that. Yeah. So, he's been around. He's been in a huge... He was touring with Deep Purple, then he was in Rainbow, which was a, a worldwide huge band. But he's, he's still... His finances are not in a great state. And he joined Sabbath, and the first time he and uh, Tony Iommi meet, they write a song called Children of the Sea. So let's go listen to Children of the Sea. Hmm. That's very different from the previous ones. Yeah, you have a new songwriter. It starts off kind of ballady, a bit like Solitude. And then it builds up. It doesn't jump. It builds up more and more and more intense. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know how to describe it. It it just, that's the best I've got. The stupid language. It's not quite like more instruments get added or anything. I'm not really sure what drives the build up. But it definitely becomes more and more and more intense and then you get that long bit of instrumental in the middle that is very intense and makes me... It's not quite the wall of sound that some modern songs have become. I can still pick out individual instruments. And I don't feel that Dio is straining himself to be heard over it, although obviously some of that is going to be the mixing. And I don't know what it would sound like live. He doesn't need to strain much. But, right, and it, it doesn't sound... And, again, he's not chanting, he's singing. This is... This the similar type of lyrics that could be chanted and it would be acceptable and it would work, but he's not. He's singing and there are places where he's holding, he's holding a sound and changing the note. Mm -hmm. um, he's doing riffs with his voice, mm -hmm. which I consider a characteristic of a talented singer, and also something that, not. Mind you, my exposure to metal is very limited, hence Meowcore, but I don't consider that to be something that is characteristic of metal. I could be wrong. I guess we'll find out. These elaborate operatic singers. Right. This one, again, has it has that evocation of folk music, but there's much more... It's much better blended into the metal sound. It doesn't sound like a group of metal musicians went, we need to do a slow song or anything like that. It's it's a better, it it's not a stew which has individual elements in it that can still be picked out and se separated. It's, um, crap, I don't know what the right word is. It's like a pudding or something. Ah, homogen homogenous. things are blended together. It's hmm? homogenous. Not quite homogenous, but much less heterogeneous. 
and I've just mispronounced Meow. the shit that. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's our first beep. It's it's much it's much better blended together than previous songs. Um, and there's also I found it very interesting that we get to that the end of that intense instrumental stretch, and it drops back to the beginning of the level of intensity. It goes back to the beginning, and then builds up much quicker as we get to the end and those final those final bits where he is screaming, look out. And he is, in fact, screaming in, in that very metal kind of way. There's a word for this. But Coming. the Misty Morning is always that kind of slow, low-intensity, lyrical element that builds up and builds up. Mm-hmm. There's a word for this in literature, or is it music, that when you come back to something that you started with, I don't know the word. But I like it. There are a couple of different words. I think in music it's often referred to as a reprise. I guess, yeah. So this is an album called Heaven and Hell. And it's my first Sabbath album that I buy as a teenager. Mm. And I knew of the existence of War Pigs and Iron Man. But I was, I had just listened to Rainbow and I was like, yep. I went to the shop that sold uh, pirated cassettes and I said, what's the next thing Ronnie James Dio did? And they said, Sabbath, give me the first Sabbath album. And that's what we did in um, post-communist Bulgaria when we didn't have money. We went to shops with pirated cassettes. Oh, good grief. And, uh, and then Napster happened and now we're here. Yeah. And I love this album. And it it ended up defining them in a way because it was really good, mm. and this well, is and it makes it very clear the the differences between what they were doing with Ozzy and what they do with Ronnie. It's it's very different. If if you just listened to this and the first song that you gave me, you wouldn't think it was the same group. Na 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 na. Oh yeah. You wouldn't think it was the same group. <laughs> They're that different. Like you could maybe recognize that a musician or two had transferred from one to the other, but the idea of of looking at them and going, "Oh, this is Black Sabbath." For both of them, would be if you listen to them back to back like that, would be very odd. Like, what do you mean this is the same musicians? What do you mean this is the same group? It's the same three of the same people ten years later. They've they've changed, they've developed, and uh, there's a guy who writes his own vocals, his own vocal melodies, and his own lyrics now. Yeah. Mm, and these lyrics are a great example of Dio lyric writing. That he always has a story to tell, and you end up waiting for the end of the guitar solo to see what happens next in the story. Not that you don't want a guitar solo, but it's nice to hear him come back and continue the story. So nice. Right. And it's very fantasy. Like, In the Misty Morning is very clearly... It's this... I don't want to say it's a clear reference to Tolkien, because the idea of the, the misty morning and, and that is not just a Tolkien thing, but it's very fantastical. Mm-hmm. 
the whole the whole story of this song is is very fantastical and a far cry from the story of war pigs which is very very down to earth and very grounded in what's going on in real life mm -hmm. and there is they're a very interesting species because they learn to fly before they learn to run and now they're in danger it's so mysterious but but it's still a story you don't know anything about them but you you feel for them these children of the sea and uh let's go listen to heaven and hell which became uh, one of their biggest songs it starts immediately with a very loud riff it may make you jump let's go well we're definitely beginning to approach songs that are at least stylistically familiar to me even if the song itself is not familiar let's listen to heaven and hell that sounded like three different songs strung together <laughs> It's good, but it definitely sounded like there were, I don't know even how to describe that, because the shifts are so, I don't have the words <laughs> for that one. We'll get to Opeth, where it sounds like ten songs it, together. It, <laughs> oh god, no. <laughs> ah! Yeah. Uh, but it, it starts off, you know, pretty standard. 80s what I think of as pretty standard 80s fair and then it goes into this this super intense metal wall of sound screaming and then the last like minute is this ballad stuff and I'm just going what is going on here <laughs> it's Tony Iommi flexing muscles I guess I can do apparently yeah. Although there's definitely some Dio flexing in there too with, with what he's doing with his voice. And compared to, compared to honestly a lot of other singers, he is using his voice not, in many ways he's not even using it to carry words. He's using it as another instrument. There are a lot of elements in these songs where he is not, there's no, there's no real words of what he's doing. It's just sounds that he's using to carry notes as another instrument that is, you know, I don't want to say more flexible because that's not fair. What a lot of people can do with various instruments is incredibly flexible. But there are obviously different instruments can do different things. And so he is he is twining his voice in as another instrument more than carrying a story through even and even the parts where he is not singing a story in English words it's you know how when you're watching a movie or a TV show then you can often tell what's coming up next by the soundtrack and this is the soundtrack to a story even without the lyrics you can you can hear the story the rise and the fall the the climax of the story and then that last uh ballad like bit is like the the epilogue where everything gets wrapped up you know and and the people who fell in love get married or have kids or whatever it is they do 
he also has really good diction. I have never had problems understanding what word he is singing. And he puts different emotions in different words. If he's talking about a wizard falling from a tower, he will make a long note that goes down because the wizard's falling from a tower. It's really interesting how expressive he is. Mm. You got to hear a lot of bass in this one. Giza was going dub 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 all the time. Yeah, there was a lot of rhythm in there that I wasn't entirely. It, it didn't sound like it was all coming from drums, which was nice. So I've noticed that drums have this tendency to overwhelm. What else I'm hearing? If the drums are really really intense and the beat is really intense from the drums, it will overwhelm the other stuff. It will overwhelm the singer, it will overwhelm um, especially guitar. I'll, I'll lose certain notes and I won't be able to hear as clearly what is going on with the guitar. I've had albums like this. doesn't happen to me much, but the way they recorded drums on some albums is really unpleasant. Okay. And this one was about, because they often ask him about his lyrics, this one, according to Dio, was about how there's no, not really heaven and hell outside this life. This life is heaven and hell. Here you may be really happy or you may be cheated out of a good destiny. And you feel like a fool, fool, fool. From Paradise Lost, whichever way I fly is hell, I myself am hell. Hmm. I should read that. Is it in um, modern English or does it have a lot of words from 200 years ago? It's Shakespearean level English. Mm -hmm. I gotta give it a try. So, some, mostly it's the construction of the grammar that is different. And because it was written as poetry, there are some stylistic elements such as dropping certain pieces to make the meter correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fun. Okay. So, this album happens in 1980. They have another one called The Mob Rules. You've heard, I think, one song from there. Um, they part ways for a while. They come back in 92 with uh, Dio for another album. And uh, they separate again because Ozzy invites Sabbath to perform at his farewell show sometime in the late 90s. And Dio is like, I'm not singing at Ozzy's farewell show. I'm the singer of Sabbath. I don't like this. And he leaves. And uh, they come back together in 2005 or 2006. And um, they go on tour, then they record an album from which I want to play you two songs. Okay. Let's go to YouTube and let's find Follow the Tears from Wacken 2008, Wacken Festival in Germany. I want you to see the production and the huge crowd and see how big they are. At this point, just one last thing. At this point, they're called Heaven and Hell, not Sabbath, because mm, they don't want people to expect 
um, War Pigs or Iron Man. They will be playing old stuff from Dio Sabbath and their new songs. So now they are a band called Heaven and Hell. Let's play Follow the Tears live. That's interesting. Mm. What do you think? I mean, part of the problem with asking me to watch that on YouTube as opposed to listen to it on Spotify is I get distracted by the staging. And I get distracted by the way people are moving. And I'm noticing that in comparison to other musicians that I've seen live, or that I've seen videos of, of performances, that's very... Well, I think of it as stripped back. There's no flashing sparks. There's no... There's no lights. Like, there are obviously the stage is lit, but the lights don't shift a lot during the song. It's a focus entirely on the music. For all that the stage is dressed up in a very specific kind of way, that doesn't play into what you're paying attention to. You are paying attention to the sound that they're making. He's Dio's not dancing. He's not he's not doing things that drag your attention away from the sound. It's just about the music and the people who are performing it. It's not about what they look like. It's not about what they're doing other than making the music. And yet it's still a whole show in and of itself. It, this is going to sound strange, it reminds me of the way that Weird Al performs. There are tours he does where it's all costumes and it's little movies and it's all this stuff with the parodies. And then there's the most recent couple tours he's done, which he refers to as the ill-advised vanity tour, that it doesn't have a lot of the parody music. It has a great deal of his original music, and very little of it involves fancy costumes or anything like that. It's, it's Weird Al sitting on the stage with his band singing these songs, and that's all there is. Because that's what he wants to offer you. He does not want to offer you this, this theatrical show. He wants to offer you the music, and this is the same way. It's not about the theatrics of it. Yeah, yeah. And Dio is known to have huge stage props. Uh, rainbow had a huge rainbow over the stage in the 70s. And in the 80s, he was fighting uh, an enormous dragon on stage and piercing with it with a huge sword, almost as tall as Dio is, because he's a small man. So he slayed a dragon on stage. I wouldn't know anything about that. <laughs> about what? About the dragon? But there's none of that here. Yeah. There's just the music. Yeah. And it's, it's still quite impressive. And that was a huge crowd. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Headlining. And I don't know how much of it was the filmography and how much of it was the way that the sound was recorded, but often in a in a outdoor festival type show like that, you can hear the audience singing back. Couldn't hear them here. And I don't know if that means because they weren't, because that's not how they choose to respond to that song, or if it simply wasn't recorded that way. Maybe they didn't emphasize it. This is from a DVD that came out uh, the next year. He, I think he asked them to sing during Heaven and Hell, and they did, but not in this one. So, yeah, I have memories of watching this on YouTube a few years ago, back when I was still recovering from my very radical Christianity. 
and just being blown away and beginning to doubt the existence of God just from witnessing this talent and hearing these lyrics. It's, it's funny how they tried to pull the metal out of me because they told me it's from Satan, but then I'm listening to this band which is supposedly from Satan and you hear in the last song today they're talking about Christian guilt and the fear of hell and they are empathizing with my fear of hell in a way that doesn't make sense for Satan. Why would Satan empathize with my fear of hell? And I'm sitting thinking and I'm in awe of these people on the stage and my mind is being rearranged. It's a very interesting memory. Mm. So let's go maybe back to Spotify because I wanted I want you to hear the the studio sound of this song. It's called Bible Black and it's by Heaven and Hell. It Let's listen to Bible it's Black. It's a metaphorical way to describe exactly what I was feeling with my Christian guilt. That one's interesting because it doesn't follow any of what I think of as the standard structure for performative music. There's no chorus. There's no verse, chorus, verse, bridge, chorus. It doesn't follow any of that. It just has that one word, that that pair of words that that links up yeah, I guess. every dozen or so lines. Yeah. And yet it doesn't feel like it's it's um imbalanced. There's melodies that are repeating. He's got two places where he says, Let me go. I've seen religion, I've found a different Right, like there are there are repetitive bits, but it's not repetitive in the way that we think of as as a full chorus. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah. And that line, I've seen religion, but the light has left me blind. That's familiar. That's familiar. There's something about that in the New Testament, but you may have heard it somewhere else. That's not what makes it familiar. You had your experience with what was effectively a cult. But I grew up in a space where the idea of anyone being anything other than Protestant Christian whatever flavor you were was completely foreign it was it was unthinkable in the in a most literal sense even that there was it was very difficult for people to conceive of the idea that you could be anything other than that the first first thing newcomers get asked is what church are you going to and you tell them I'm not going to church and they look at you like you've spoken Bulgarian they have no idea what you've said. What do you mean you're not going to church? That can't be right. And so this idea that you get religion, which in my childhood meant Christianity and nothing else. Mormon was the farthest outlay there was. Um, and that it would blind you to other things. That you would you would become unable to conceive of other things. Hmm. Interesting. And a lot of there are a lot of elements in this song that really speak to me of that, of the the 
uh, the tendency of certain kinds of Christians to be so convinced of the validity of what they believe that the the mere idea that someone else could think differently is impossible for them to think of. Not even that they think it's evil, they literally can't think of it. They can't hold that idea in their head. Which part, for example? Being left blind by religion? I don't... I mean, that, that one line, obviously, but... Like early on where it says um, I must have been out cold but the way the story's told they found me lying naked in the rain it's it speaks to the the way that such people will will take what you say and and alter it to fit the way they see the world because they're incapable of seeing other things yeah that makes conversations really hard and understanding each other yeah because they don't they don't have the ideas anymore if they ever had them. Mm. And that's an art that I don't master. Writing lyrics that allow interpretations. Because I'm hearing completely different things here about my religious guilt. And Well, yeah. You had a completely different experience than I did. So, of course, yeah. your interpretation is going to be different. Yeah. Anyone's interpretation of of whatever, that's... That's what makes language what it is. Language is not just... Language is always informed not just by dictionary definitions and grammatical constructions. It is informed by your experiences. It is informed by the culture surrounding you. And there's, there's a vast difference between not just the experiences that I had growing up compared to what you had, but the cultures that we grew up in mm. are vastly different. Yeah. And so the things that we get out of any given piece of music, but especially one like this, that touches on some fairly specific events, is going to be, it's, it's going to be a different interpretation for each of us. Mm. But Dio seemed to em embrace it in the way he wrote the words he uses. It's it's interesting. Mm -hmm. One of the other things that comes to me when I'm looking at these lyrics and listening is, again, going back to what I was saying about people having an inability, certain kinds of people having an inability to conceive of things outside of their experience. When I shifted away from Christianity to paganism and witchcraft, there were a number of people I grew up with who could not conceive of the idea that I was doing anything other than worshiping Satan. Even as I was telling them that I'm studying these books and I'm looking at this mythology and I'm worshiping a goddess, they couldn't conceive of anything else. And so he says, the Bible black, as though, and some of the other lyrics, like he says, uh, where is it? Here's another spell. And so there are elements in this song that make me think that the singer is, is shifting away from Christianity to something similar to what I found. But the people who are speaking to him uh, can't conceive of anything other than the shapes of Christianity. Yep. So naturally they refer to his book as the Bible Black or the, back, the Black Bible the black bible and then even the name of the band black sabbath 
is derived in a sense from that same thing this this idea that if you are are worshiping in any way other than what christians consider acceptable it still has to be cast in a construction of christianity yeah and all these gods of false gods and you are just being fooled by satan it's all satan if it's not jesus right yeah and i don't know that the name of the band was intended to evoke that it's just where my train of thought wandered off to i don't even remember they were thinking about witches they wanted something dark and uh they you'll see if you watch ayomi more often he's always wearing a cross and giza butler is always wearing a cross i did see that he said when in the i did see in the first years someone gave us these crosses and told us that they would protect us from evil so i never went on stage without my cross (laughs) it's a talisman it's fun i like that so there you go hmm. bible black um this is 2009 you saw um this is their last mm-hmm. tour uh ronnie dio is uh, in his uh, in his late 60s here mm. and he's already uh, having these horrible stomach pains which he ignores for the show and then he's doubled down after the show and before the show the tour ends they diagnose him with stomach cancer. That explains the way he seemed to be moving. Yeah, not very energetic? He did constantly seem to be... No, it's not. it was not a question of energy. It was a question of the way he was holding his body. Mm-hmm. He seemed constantly to be leaning forward a little bit. Or more than a little, even. Mm, I guess. And I wondered about it at the time because it almost seemed like he was stooping over. Mm. But if he was already suffering from... Yeah the illness to that extent at that point then that would be part of his compensation to be able to keep singing yeah you're right in the 80s he didn't in the 90s he was he was more he was standing straighter up yeah and uh he dies in may of 2010 they things were going well they were thinking about recording another album which i would have loved but this is where we lose dio and uh, one or two years after that, they come back together with Ozzy. They record an album called 13 as Black Sabbath. And they go on a farewell tour. And now they're resting, retired. Dear listeners, this is where we lost connection for a few seconds. And my friend started talking about Ozzy Osbourne. So back to him. To say Ozzy Osbourne or to refer to the Osbournes in the United States to a younger generation, to the generation younger than me, is often, they're famous because they're famous. There's no reference to Black Sabbath. It's all about those crazy Osbournes. Yeah, he's a reality TV star. It's not about any music that any of them might have made. It's simply about the the wackiness and the publicness of their lives. Mm. Yeah. It's very different to a metal fan. This Osborne's thing is a, a weird thing that he did to the side for us because we know all these hits that he had a few years after he left Sabbath and he had these amazing guitar players and songwriters with him. He did have a, a pretty good career, but I guess this is what the general population sees. It might just have been that I wasn't looking in the right places, too. There are almost certainly Americans who see what you see and, and have different experiences than I do. 
but I certainly have no memory of knowing that he was associated with Black Sabbath mm. until recently. Wow. And then I went, oh, is that what he was doing? Is that why he's famous? Wow. And it's not like you were not interested in music or living under a rock. You might, I wonder how many people right. are like this. Wow. But it's true that there is an enormous and constantly growing library of music and musicians. And the advent of the internet in the last 25, 30 years has only made that more so. Musicians that might have been purely local um, when we were kids, they might still be purely local in a different sort of sense in that they've developed their own kind of local on the internet. <laughs> and even people in their hometown might not have ever heard of them, but they can record their music in their garage or wherever and put it on the internet and collect this following of, of a thousand people or so and be quite popular within that circle. How does that relate to Aussie? Oh, just thinking in the sense of if there's so much available out there, it's easy to miss out on even very popular or famous things because you're looking in a different direction. Mm. Yeah, because you you can find so many things already. You can, you're exposed yeah, to Yeah, the more that's available out there, even something very large can disappear into that because there's just so much. Yeah, yeah. That's why there are people who say, oh, Depeche Mode? I don't know them. And I'm in shock. Right. Right. And I'm kind of in shock too. And yet, for me, Depeche Mode, my knowledge of Depeche Mode at the moment is limited to perhaps one or two songs that I remember from growing up. Whereas you've got this whole catalog at your fingertips. Mm -hmm. And yet, if I were to name off some of the musicians that I have liked to listen to in the past, like Jason Mraz, you would know maybe one or two songs from that because that's not the genre that you have tended to follow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and like there's a whole sweep of Celtic type music that I could introduce you to that you they're just as famous in their own circles and just as well known, but you weren't looking in that direction, so you didn't see them. Yeah, yeah, I just know the uh, the, the, the moment when Richie Blackmore went into that kind of music with Blackmore's Night with his wife. Yeah. So, which songs did you like the most? What do you think is your favorite from this episode? I don't think I could point to any one that I liked the most. They all appealed in different ways. If I was going, to, if I was going to pick one to probably listen to over and over, it would probably be Heaven and Hell or Solitude. But I might choose a version of Solitude that wasn't actually Black Sabbath's version. Because while I like the I like the lyrics and I like the tone of it, I'm not really sure I like the singer. Yeah. yeah. I think it could be better handled by someone who has who has a better voice. Mm -hmm. Honestly. You. I would really love to hear a clear version of Vilevalo singing that. But I don't, except for that one time at Held On, I don't know that he's ever sung it again. And I can't find a clear recording from there. They're all audience recordings and they're all echoey and not great. Yep, none of us can. Okay, so 
And again, that goes back to what I was saying a minute ago about the the increasing amount of material that is available, you know, back in the back in the beginning of Black Sabbath, it was not possible to simply record out in the audience. Yeah. You couldn't get an audience recording of what they were doing on stage because the the equipment didn't exist. Mm-hmm. If there was going to be a recording of their performance, it was going to be a professional recording with lots of cameras and other people choosing how to cut and where to cut to and which uh, sound streams they were picking up. And now, you know, even if you can't get to a concert or it's on the other side of the world, if you know where to look and you know how to look, you can find probably the entire concert online somewhere in bits and pieces. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are your cats doing? Let's go to the cats before we end. Buddy is made a round button on the floor. He has acquired a piece of paper that was used as packaging in a box. And he has slept on it for the last three weeks. It is slowly coming apart. Oh, he's noticed that I've noticed him and he's stood up and is rattling his ears at me. Uh, I think Jana is in the box. Yep, I see some ears. John is in the kitty tree looking at me and going, Mom, why are you looking at me? And I have booped her nose and she's like, no, go away. No, go away. I don't, none of the other three are in here. I, Marari is probably still under the headboard. We gave up trying to keep them out from under the head of the bed. Mm. And Marari has decided that that's her cave now. Mm-hmm. I've seen Kronos this morning. Before we started this episode, he had come in and was telling his papa how much he loved him and purring his fuzzy little head off. (laughs) I have not seen Stormlight in a couple of days, but that's not unusual. The last time I saw her, she seemed fine. Mm -hmm. She's the introvert. She's the introvert, Kitty. She is is not social. Mm -hmm. She is the opposite of social. Um, and actually, none of the cats that we have right now are, are social in the sense of lap cats. They don't typically want to come up and sit on your lap very much. But Buddy and Jana and often Marari want to be in the same room as where their humans are. Mm-hmm. They want to know what we're doing and they want to be able to observe even if they're not participating. Mm-hmm. So we have perches and things for them everywhere when I go out to my deck and have lunch in the afternoon I come back in and there's Buddy and Jana sitting on the cat tree looking out on the deck watching me <laughs> do they follow you last night when we were gaming sometimes yes sometimes on the other hand the way this house is arranged and the fact that there are mostly just the two of us here we don't really often bother closing the bathroom door so I think the cats feel less of a need to follow us in because there's nothing blocking them. There's no secret. So they can just kind of but I have had times where Jonna will follow me in and be like what you doing mom and I'll say I'm busy go away and I have never had one of those cats that wants to sit in my pants while I'm (laughs) on the bathroom. They don't none of my cats want to do that. Um, Marari has developed this habit of uh, begging for treats in a new way. Mm. So I've uh, told you before 
that when they bring us a toy, they get treats, they get rewarded. Uh, so I have this plastic stick with a long felt ribbon on it that's Marari's favorite toy. And yesterday she dragged it up and down the hall six times to make me give her treats. Oh. The same, the same gift six so. times. Okay. Mm -hmm. she, she's like, I know how to manipulate the system now, and I'm going to manipulate it, and you're going to give me what I want. I thought that this 16-ounce value box of treats would last like a year. <laughs> I think it's going to last another month. <laughs> and I think it's lasted maybe three. And she's saving resources, because she's always bringing the same toy. It's very clever. I guess. Wow. I don't know. Buddy likes the round toys. So we have a, a plush D20 die that's about as big as his head. And he likes to carry that around and bring it to me. Mm -hmm. And Jana has actually not yet developed the fetching trick yet. But I don't think it's fair to to only let one kitty have treats. So if one kitty brings me a toy and the other kitties turn up, they get treats too. <laughs> so she's basically just she's basically just piggybacking off of Marari and Buddy at this point. <laughs> and there are rules. You know, they have to actually bring me the toy. If it doesn't count if I just hear her with it. She has to bring it into my line of sight. Mm -hmm. And she's, she has had days where she'll carry it down the hall and I can hear the stick dragging and I can hear her meowing. And then she sticks her head in the door and there's no toy. And I'm going, what are you doing? You, you didn't show it to me. You have to show me that you are a mighty hunter. It doesn't count if you left your catch outside. Nice. And she always huffs. Two days ago, she dragged it down the hall and then dropped it in the middle of the hall because she could see me sitting in the living room, and I told her that didn't count. She hadn't brought it to me, and she sulked. But she she didn't bring it to you. She, and like, she sat. She she dropped the toy in the middle of the hallway, and I told her no, and she sat down in the doorway and literally pouted. <laughs> what an inner life. Cats, man. I wonder what inner life Stormlight Cats, has. That like, what is she thinking about all day, all alone? Uh sleep probably. Mm -hmm. And oh, it's so nice to be somewhere dogs don't chase me. Mm-hmm. And hmm, I wonder when I can sneak upstairs when no other kitty will see me. <laughs> because they keep wanting to play with me and I don't want to play. I'm old and tired. Is she the oldest? As far as we know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We don't actually have a firm age for Stormlight or Buddy because they both came to us off the street as adult cats. Okay, anything else you want to say before we do the outro and end the episode? I don't think so. Okay, so... See you next time. See you next time, guys, with episode one of Meowcore. Um, Thank you for listening. And uh, horns up and listen to music if you want to die, because it's good for you. Bye-bye. Grow your hair long and listen to plenty of metal. Yeah. <laughs> Bye-bye.